Two weeks ago, we took a look at Jonah chapter 2, and I love Jonah chapter 2 and today Jonah chapter 4, because in these texts, we see the internal dialogue of the prophet of God with God himself. And for most Christians, most people in general, they really struggle with knowing how to even talk to God. And what you see here today is something that should give you some comfort in how you speak to the Lord, because you probably can't speak to the Lord as bad as the prophet Jonah does. He is a small child throwing a terrible tantrum. And so as we take a look at Jonah chapter 4, let's take a look at a few things here. This is a quick overview. First chapter, Jonah runs away. Chapter 2, he's swallowed by the whale and he finally repents. Even after the pagan sailors in chapter 1, they repented. Then he spit up onto the shores of Assyria, just north of Israel, and he accepts the message of the Lord. He'll take the oracle to Nineveh, and that oracle is five Hebrew words. Forty days, and Nineveh will be overturned or destroyed. There's some debate on exactly what that last word is, but it's basically flames, destruction, ultimate defeat and humiliation. And so Jonah is given that word, and when you're the prophet of God, you can only say exactly the words that God gives you. You can't add to it. You can't subtract to it. Exodus 18 tells us that if you do one of those two things, you get stoned. And so he is only going to give that message, and when he finally hears, he just has to tell the Ninevites five words. And remember, he hates the Ninevites. The Ninevites are like Nazis. He's like, okay, I can deliver that. That sounds pretty good because I want to see their ultimate destruction. Good word, Lord. And so he goes and he basically just walks through the town saying, for three days, 40 days, Nineveh shall be overturned. And revival breaks out. And so now we're on chapter 4. And just to remind you, Jonah is a historical, satirical narrative. This really happened most likely not long after the, the, the story ends, Jonah tells the story, and it's written down, and Jonah wanted it written down. He knew it was from the Lord, and it enters into what we would call the canon of Scripture, that the people of Israel, the people of God, recognized it as the Word of the Lord. It was God's Word. And so it's been canon ever since. But it's, 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 it's a satirical episode because The prophet does everything you shouldn't do. He acts just the opposite. He's trying to do good, but things often end end up right, just like my favorite TV show, The Office, right? Michael Scott is not the world's best boss, but he believes that he is. Jonah the prophet believes he's the best prophet, but he's not. It is satire. So this will help you understanding it. So let's take a look at Jonah chapter 4. And here's his attitude. The prophet should not want to nuke people, okay? He says, but, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is, that is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, 
take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Let's just pray for a moment. Dear Jesus, we ask that you would give us those same ears that we saw at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 6, that everyone who heard the word preached heard from you. And so we ask that you would give us the Pentecostal ears of hearing your word today, that you would take your word of grace and apply it to our lives. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, Jonah knows the grace of God. So, you see up there on the right, you see the, the first time in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament when God declares who He is to Moses, and that's when Moses was cleft in the rock. This is the first time in history that, that we have recorded how God describes Himself. That's Exodus 34, 6 through 8. And basically, Jonah's quoting it verbatim. And this is very interesting for you to understand the nature and the character of God. Because God could have said whatever He wanted to about who He is to Moses. But look at the word choices that God uses to describe Himself. He could have said, I'm wrathful, I'm righteous, I'm all-powerful. No, He says, I'm compassionate. And you know, in the Old Testament, compassion is only used to describe God. He's gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in love, right? And look at how Paul kind of reshapes it in the book of Ephesians. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for Himself. He's a loving Father according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace that He lavished on us in the Beloved One. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. And you see there how often grace appears and the Hebrew word for grace is hesed. This is the theme of the character of God from beginning to end of the Scriptures is the grace of God, His loving kindness, and to what lengths God will go to to prove to you, to deliver to you, to show you His love for you that He would sacrifice His very own Son. That's why I love that song that we just sang before I, I stood up, His love never fails, right? Do you believe that? You need to believe that because this is who the God of the Bible is. This is who the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is, kind and compassionate. And so we see here that the prophet is not acting in accordance to the nature of God who he represents. And he feels tricked by God. He goes, I knew you were a gracious God. He really liked that message. He wanted destruction to come to the Ninevites. Remember, they're like Nazis. The Ninevites, the Assyrians, they gloried in how they dismembered their enemies. And so he, and he knows that the Assyrians are their mortal enemy. And so he feels tricked, right? Because he was expecting this five-word message would not lead them to repentance, but the king tears his cloak and announces that everyone in Nineveh has to repent. And in those days, that, that when the king, whatever the king believed, his loyal subjects believed. Okay? So it wasn't an American understanding of the divine. So the whole city converts. The whole city repents. And this is the last thing that he wanted. He felt tricked. 
This is why he's so angry. Now, here's something. This is the way God works. God is so much fun. He can appoint things to happen that we're not even aware of. So that fish man, that's, that's the God that they worship, Dag. Really an attractive guy, right? That's who I want to worship, right? I'd rather worship a Ferrari. It's a whole lot better looking. Some dude with a beard and a red beanie, you know, a raspberry beret and a fishtail. I guess he's kind of like a mermaid. I don't know if Ariel knew him or not. But anyhow, I could go on. Um, Jonah comes to the Ninevites by this miraculous sign. He comes out of the great fish, and he lands on Assyrian land, okay? So obviously, he's been sent by God. They know he's a Jewish prophet. They know he's a man of God, and so they're going to receive his word. And you see the bottom slide there. The acid in the, um, the, the, the whale's stomach plus the sea salt plus the sun made him glowing white. So to the Ninevites, here comes this glowing white prophet from God sent from the belly of their God telling them to repent. What do you think their response is going to be? All they needed was five words. Isn't God Humorous. I mean, and that's part of the humor of this, that God can take what seemingly can't happen and He makes it happen for His glory. And Jonah's not happy with it. He says, I'd rather be dead. He prays an imprecatory prayer for himself. You see there from Psalm 69 how he kind of converts, converts and perverts a, a prayer, an imprecatory prayer, which is a prayer for a divine curse. All of Psalm 69 is. But you see, oh God, it is you who knows my folly, and my wrongs are not hidden from you. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me. O God of Israel, because for your sake I have borne reproach, dishonor has covered my face. That's an acceptable prayer. But you see, Jonah is a narcissist to the worst degree. He wants to be dead. So he doesn't even, he doesn't even pray the Psalms correctly. He's so upset. So he wants to bring judgment on them. And by the way, just to remind you, you do have an outline in your bulletin if you want to be able to follow that along. Um, I'm, I'm keeping with it, but he, wants them, he still wants judgment on them. So I'm going to connect here this theme of anger and judgment in verses 4, 5, and 9. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Okay, I'm just going to stop right there. Do you want to know how to counsel somebody who's in an emotional meltdown? Do you want to know how to counsel somebody who's not in complete control of their faculties? Just like the Lord does. The Lord shows us that truly, as the Scriptures declare Him to be the great counselor, He asks questions. Is it, is it really right for you to have such an emotional outbreak? See, He doesn't condemn Jonah. He could have said, you're the worst prophet ever. What am I doing with you? You're a complete failure. No, those are probably things that you say about yourself. You probably condemn your own self, but does God condemn you? No, He doesn't. He asks questions of you. He wants to sort out your emotions with you. This is why He's a gracious, kind, compassionate God who is slow to anger. Then verse 5, Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. You can see him up there on the hill. And there he made himself a shelter or a booth, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. He's expecting in 40 days, this could be on 
you know, maybe five, ten days in, he's wanting fireworks. He's thinking Sodom and Gomorrah. He's like, this is going to be good. He's getting the popcorn ready. He's getting his big gulp. Okay, he's trying to find a comfy chair. This is going to be the best show of his life. And he's still bent on their destruction. Then in verse 9, but God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. Okay, do you see this reoccurring problem here of Jonah and his anger? Now, I know in this audience of good Christian people, no one has an anger problem here. I joke, it's one of the deadly sins. And it, why it's a deadly sin? It means it will be with you your entire life. Okay, it will always be at your, your, your steps. And so, anger is the deadly sin. He throws a temper tantrum. He blames God. And this is why I'm saying, you can't talk to, to the Lord any more rude than Jonah can. You just can't. And we, our anger tells us that it's justified because you have been wronged or the wrong in this world has injured you undeservedly. Someone cuts you in front of you in traffic. Someone says something that's not very kind about the clothes that you're wearing or your hair or whatever, and you feel injured. That produces anger. And so even little things can set us off, like spilling the milk. I still feel terrible when I got angry with my son Jack when he was seven years old for spilling the milk for like the 80th time. You would have thought that we were done with the, the sippy era. And there goes, and I just got so angry. And I felt so terrible. How, how can I get angry at this precious little boy? What kind of a person am I? And so anger is a deadly sin. And our anger implies that God doesn't know what he's doing. It implies that you should not be bothered by the problems of the world. I mean, part of Jonah's angry at the Assyrians because they're an enemy to, to them and impose a threat, a real, vital, mortal threat to his nation. But ultimately, our anger will alienate us from God, as you can see going on here in this story. He's being alienated from God because of his anger. He is clinging, as he said in verse 2.8, he is clinging to his idol of being right. And he's angry because he knows he's right. And by clinging to his idol, he's what? Forfeiting the grace of God that could be his. He could be in sweet relationship right now with God, but he's choosing anger because he thinks he's right. Now, this is one of my favorite scenes from a really stupid, pathetic movie, The Blues Brothers. Elwood there, played by Dan Aykroyd, says, Illinois Nazis. And Jake says, I hate Illinois Nazis. And they proceed to drive them off of the bridge. That's part of the storyline, but it just kind of reveals kind of a sardonic understanding of our dislike for our fellow man and, and, and a little bit of humor. But Aquinas has it right. Anger is saying, this is not the way life is supposed to be, and I'm really angry about it. Where does grace and anger meet? That's the theme. That's the main point of this passage. It meets at the cross. For God has not destined us for wrath, and I would even add there, or to have wrath towards our fellow man. But for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with Him. 
The goal for your life from God's perspective is not that you receive His anger or that you have anger towards others or towards Him. It's that you are engrafted into Him. That you are, have sweet fellowship with the Lord Jesus. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 2, we've all once lived by in our passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of anger, wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, grace, because of the great love which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. What is the antidote for your anger? The grace of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus. If you're angry, what should you do with it? Take it to the cross. Because it was at the cross that God's anger was put down. You see, God's wrath was poured out so that we really have no right to be angry because all of the anger against all of the sin in the world was poured out at Calvary on Jesus. So give up your anger to God and let His grace fill your heart instead. And one of the ways that it will work its way out is if you serve others who are suffering from the harshness of life. You will find that as you serve others who are suffering and who are going through difficult times, that God's compassion will fill your heart and you will have a heart that the anger gets replaced by grace and compassion. That's really the goal for you. And you can only get there if you go to the cross, if you only receive the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have no other better solution for when you get angry other than to take it to Jesus because all of your anger has been paid for and accomplished and wiped out at Calvary. Amen to that. Now, the other part of this equation here with his anger is he's angry at, at the city. He's angry at humanity. There you see the, the tent cities of homeless people outside of L.A. on the top. And then you see the beautiful bistro streets of France, right? Cities offer goodness and badness. There's reason to hate all the slums and the homelessness of the city. There's even reason to hate all of the wonderful rich people who are enjoying their, si their, their life, right? So Jonah's feeling this anger, but we shouldn't feel hostility towards the city. But rather, we're instructed by God that we should seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. You live in Houston, Texas. Do you seek the welfare of Houston, Texas because of the grace and the compassion of Jesus Christ? I would say it's a command. I would also say it's a response to His grace, right? That we seek its welfare. As we seek the welfare of Houston, we will benefit from the welfare that the city provides. And so there's this symbiotic relationship and that we are not free of, of, of moral responsibility for our fellow man in our city. Now, let's continue on with our next point, the unpredictable plant, the worm, and the wind. Jonah 6 through 8. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. So it's nice to see the angry prophet happy. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. It's called a shirako. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die. And he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. 
He's such an unlikable guy. He really is. So what do we learn here? God comforts us with his grace, and he tests us with our discomforts. Right? This is an object lesson, these three verses, on divine mercy. Right? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. He shades, he shades the prophet to give him comfort. Right? But then discomfort comes when the plant dies. And so he's clinging to this plant. It's an idol. It's a source of his comfort. What happens when we cling to idols? We forfeit the grace that could be ours. So Jonah's wishing for everyone in Nineveh to experience divine discomfort, yet he's upset when he experiences it. He's a complete contrast and a complete contradiction. Right? So I like this guy on the boat. Right? He's enjoying life. But what you don't know is that two minutes after this picture was taken, a big power boat came by and knocked his little boat over and he went into the water. And now he's experiencing discomfort. Isn't that life? We go from comfort to discomfort. And so the scripture here is telling us that our comforts are from God and they're from His grace. But the discomforts are to point us back to His grace. When you find yourself uncomfortable, discomforted in life, it is God saying, turn to my grace. That's what it's saying. That's what the discomforts of life are doing. So here's how Paul said it. I have learned to be content no matter what happens to me. I know what it's like not to have what I need. I also know what it's like to have more than I need. I have learned the secret of being content no matter what happens. I am content whether I am fed or hungry. I am content whether I have more than enough or not enough. I can do all this by the power of Christ. He gives me strength. I love that translation on that verse. Right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He gives me strength. That is grace. Grace is the operative mindset and behavior pattern of God towards His creatures. He operates towards us out of His grace. Now, it will lead us to, have, to forgive others and to have compassion. Um, some people think that grace is just a get-out-of-jail pass, uh, get out of uh, and, and go um, collect $200. That life should be easy. There's no consequences. Look at what Paul says in Romans 2 at the bottom right. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? What does grace do? It leads you to repentance. Because when you see the grace of God, when you experience the grace of God, it should turn you and say, I, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy of God's grace. Look at all the sin in my life. Look at all my shortcomings. Look at my moral inabilities. And Lord, you still love me. I exalt you and I praise you. You see, God's grace leads us to repentance. It doesn't mean that it gives you permission for moral laxity. It actually encourages it. I love this guy right here. This is Carlos Santana. He's a Jesus freak now. Look at what he said at the very bottom there. You have to go through the darkest night of the soul to get to the brightest day. And he sounds just like a musician. Forgiveness, man. Forgiveness is incredibly liberating. I'm here to tell you that it can be done. You can be freed. This is what grace does. 
Grace takes the most crazy rock star and turns him around. And he can do it for you. He can do it for me. Now, God does have a plan for us. And we're going to see that here in the next verses. We're to be his ambassadors. We're on a great commission. Okay, I think I've... Have I missed the last text here? Oh, there it is. I skipped over it. Here's the last part of Jonah. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Okay, a couple quick points on this. 120,000, lots of different interpretations. Here's my interpretation. It's 120,000 men. There's a second set of humanity that would be the women of an equal amount, and then there's the children under the age of 18. The city at this time is around 400,000 people, and, it, and he means all the people who repented, which was the majority of the city. God's concerned about them. That's where his care and compassion is. And then the other phrase here that everybody writes a lot about is they don't know their they can't tell their right hand from their left hand. With their right hand, the Ninevites, the Assyrians, are being awful, vicious, evil people. They kill, they disembowel people, and they think it's really cool. They don't do it to themselves, they just do it to their enemies. They think it's really cool to be vicious, right, to their enemies. And they feel morally justified in doing that. And that's their left hand. They don't have a conscience to be able to understand that what they're doing with their right hand is despicable and, and deplorable to God. And that's what he means there. And so he's saying, look, he's up there waiting for them to burn. Let me ask you this question. We just sent a team to Ireland last week. They went to Dublin. What if, and I don't know what the story is, but what if Dublin had a revival while they were there? And after the revival, our team just went to some Irish pub and ate shepherd's pie and drank Guinness and listened to Van Morrison and you too. Now, you could certainly understand why they would want that comfort, but what should they be doing? They should be out there leading those converts in the revival and discipling them in the Bible and, and continuing to teach them the Word of God, right? That's what Jonah's supposed to be doing. He's supposed to be down in the city telling them about God, telling them the Scriptures, that he has memorized. He is a walking Bible. But what does he do? He keeps it from them. And he is forgetting that Jesus, that the Lord, has this master plan of evangelism, right? You are Christ's ambassadors. Wherever you go, Christ and his grace goes with you. Now, this last week, um, we um, were in Colorado with our mentors, Jerry and Holly. I've known Jerry for 30 years. Jerry played football for Bear Bryant. And this is the way he looks at evangelism and how to share God's grace with others. Now, here's a typical Jerryism. Before we got there, Jerry was at a department store or something, and he's just kind of standing there. And the uh, woman that works there, the, rep the sales representative, comes up to him and says, Sir, is somebody helping you? Yeah. Jesus Christ, who's helping you? <laughs> That's Jerry. And so 
He led a Bible study at Fox News in Washington, D.C. for about 15 years with all the people in the D.C. Bureau there and all those anchors and reporters. And he would tell them over and over, hey, just put, just put Christ on the scoreboard. Let him be on the scoreboard of your lips in your life. And so they, they heard this in their weekly Bible study for all these years. And nine years ago, this happened. Tiger Woods fell from grace. Read the words of Britt Hume, who was in that Bible study. He says, Tiger Woods will recover as a golfer. That's least important. Now, hear the compassion of Britt. Whether he can recover as a person, I think, is a very open question. And it's a tragic situation for him. I think he's lost his family. It's not clear to me if he'll be able to have a relationship with his children. But the Tiger Woods that emerges once the news value dies out of the scandal seems to me to depend on his faith. He's said to be a Buddhist. I don't think that faith offers the kind of forgiveness and redemption that is offered by the Christian faith. So my message to Tiger would be, Tiger, turn to the Christian faith and you can make a total recovery and be a great example to the world. I don't know if Billy Graham could really say it much better. That's putting Jesus on the scoreboard, right, in your everyday life, wherever he takes you. Now, here's the rest of the story. Britt Hume came under so much hostile attack for that. It got really, really bad. And so he calls my friend Jerry and says, Jerry, it's really bad. i got to talk to you right now. And Jerry was on the eighth hole of Sawgrass, which is a really great golf course in Florida. It's a PGA course. He said, hey, Britt, I'm, I'm on the eighth hole of Sawgrass. I'm going to have to call you back. Britt starts yelling and screaming at him. <laughs> he says, all right, guys, go on. I need to take this call. He's like, tell me how I'm supposed to make sense of this. I did what you told me to do. I put Jesus on the scoreboard. And he says, okay, someday you get to stand in front of Jesus. And are you going to be glad when you stand in front of Jesus that you put him on the scoreboard and talked about his grace to the world? Yeah, I guess so. Now, all those people who are angry and mad at you and telling you that it was wrong that you talked about Jesus and his grace, guess what? They get to stand before Jesus too. Now, whose shoes do you want to be in? The nature of God's grace, it is a faith that is living, it's a bull trust. Faith is a bull trust in God's grace. So certain of God's favor that it would risk death a thousand times trusting in it. Such confidence and knowledge of God's grace makes you happy, joyful, and bold in your relationship to God and all creatures. The Holy Spirit makes this happen through faith. Because of it, you freely willingly and joyfully do good to everyone, serve everyone, suffer all kinds of things, and all to the love and praise of the God who has shown you such grace. That's grace. That's what it produces. We need all the grace that we can get. And so what we're going to do here is the praise team's going to come out, and we're just going to have a little season of prayer. I'm going to ask the elders who are present in this service and any um, pastors, minister, anybody who's a minister on staff to come down forward. If you'd like to come forward for prayer, uh, you may do so. You may also stay in your seat and pray. I would encourage you to think about your relationship with the Lord, your need for grace, 
maybe your anger, maybe there are things that you need to confess to the Lord, and we're just going to take a few minutes, and then after we've had a short season of prayer, um, you can also pray this, this, this prayer for grace that's on the screen as well. But let's take some time for prayer. I'll be down here as well.